Hi boys and girls, welcome back to Coast Access Radio Storytime. Today we're finding out how David is getting on with the strange Agnes in The Ghost House by Bill Nagelkirk. Will he discover she's a ghost? Let's see. Chapter 14 David turns to see Amber watching him from the front window. She lifts her hand and he waves back. Then she taps her phone and David gives a thumbs up in return. He's promised not to stay away as long as he did yesterday and to text her to let her know he's doing okay. Third time lucky, he thinks. Will I find the place more easily today than I did yesterday? He does, partly due to a lack of stranger encounters en route. The gardeners aren't on the scene. They said they wouldn't be back till Sunday, but David was half hoping. He'd enjoyed the talk too, not that they'd done much of the talking himself. He pauses to check out the garden. Already a large area of turf has been removed from the staked-out rectangle of land, only patches here and there still left to slice away. He spots a small box tied with twine to a nearby tree. It contains A5 flyers promoting the community garden, times and contact numbers. And two names, Molly and George. Nice one. David meant what he said about telling Mum about the community garden because he really does think she'll be keen to volunteer once she gets her own garden under control. He takes a flyer and shoves it into a pocket. Later on, he'll leave it somewhere handy for Mum to find. That way, she won't know he's been out in the red zone by himself. There's a spade propped up against the trunk of a tree. It looks like the one Molly was using. Did she leave it there on purpose or by accident? What if someone comes along and steals it? Should he put it out of sight? David decides he will. He pushes the shovel a little way under some shrubbery beside the tree where Molly or George left it standing. When they return next Sunday, they'll still be able to see it easily enough. Help me. Save me. David covers his ears. It doesn't help. The house is right in front of him. It whispers. The bees buzz. Are those sounds for real? Or are they coming from inside his head? Agnes is waiting for him in the hallway. It's as if she's hardly moved since yesterday. She's wearing the same clothes, too. Even her socks still droop around her ankles. Your Majesty, she says, giving David a mock bow. What brings you back to see your loyal subject? More playful words, but David decides not to play along. Confronting Agnes was never going to be easy, and joining in her silly talk about majesties and subjects is only going to make things more difficult. Why did Stephen have to use a camping stove? He says, no mucking about. Agnes hesitates. She shrugs. For the first time, she doesn't meet David's eye. It's because you don't have any electricity, David says. Do you? All the power's gone from the red zone, except for the houses where people have chosen to stay put. I chose to stay put, Agnes points out. There's a power pole at the end of the driveway, but no cable running from it to your house. It delves underground, maybe? You should know. David flicks a light switch on the wall. See? Nothing. 
Perhaps the bulb is broken. David looks up at the ceiling. There isn't a bulb, he says. He darts into the front room where Stephen is supposed to have been sleeping. None in here either. Bet there aren't any light bulbs in the whole house. And there's no phone line either. I noticed all that yesterday, but it didn't really click until I was leaving. In the meantime, he's thought of something else just as problematic. More so. You won't have water either, he tells Agnes. I chose to stay put, Agnes repeats. Then why doesn't it bother you that you aren't connected to anything? Agnes doesn't reply. You need help, don't you? David says. I chose to stay put, Agnes says a third time. And you, David Parkhouse, are a most ill-mannered boy. The most ill-mannered and uninformed boy I've had the misfortune to meet. A busybody to boot. I have my own well. Go and see for yourself. She points imperiously to the right-hand side of her house. David goes outside to investigate. Almost immediately, he spots a pipe jutting up from the ground, like the periscope of an underground submarine, or the question mark head of a snake ready to strike. A tap is attached to the pipe. Slow drips of water form and fall from it, losing themselves in the long grass. David bends to turn the tap. Water gushes out. He cups some in his palms, tastes it, cold as delicious. He wishes he'd known about it yesterday. He turns the tap off, slightly tighter than when he opened it, but not so tight that Agnes won't be able to use it again. The drips stop. Right, he says, coming back inside. I guess you're still okay for drinking water. Nothing else. Many of the people who built the first houses here dug their own wells, Agnes says, as if she thinks David wants to be told this. Before the city council laid pipes. You didn't know that, did you? He shakes his head. You know I didn't know. Even if he really is as ignorant as Agnes claims he is, that's no excuse for her to try and hide the truth from him. But is that really what she's trying to do? Agnes never actually claimed to have had electricity or a landline telephone. That's all been an unspoken assumption on David's part. A reasonable one. We were self-sufficient in those early days, Agnes continues, starting to sound more and more like David's teacher. Usually a cool enough guy, he sometimes sends his class to sleep by talking about a past that none of them, except him, has lived through. We had our own water, our own livestock, chickens and the like orchards and large vegetable plots. We didn't need much else. We didn't really need anybody either. But nowadays, says David, getting back on track, everyone has electricity and cell phones and running water and... and toilets. He's surprised he didn't think of this right from the start. And proper toilets need running water, not water from an outdoor tap. I still have my outhouse, sniffs Agnes, perfectly sufficient when one requires such a facility. Agnes turns her back on him, muttering something that David can't hear. I won't detain you any further, she says, 
dismissing him. She merges with the other shadows in the hallway, almost vanishing from sight. Wait, don't go, David calls out after her. He's confronted Agnes, challenged her, and hasn't got anywhere. But he's certainly not going to let her off the hook that easily. He's not ready to be dismissed yet. She needs help, his help, somebody's help. And besides, there's still something else he needs to ask her. Chapter 15 Keeping at a safe distance, David follows Agnes down the hallway and finds her standing beside a wooden rocking chair in the kitchen at the rear of the house. Ill-mannered, ignorant, but persistent, she says. There's some hope for you yet, I'll grant you that. I wondered, would you mind if I stayed a bit longer? Agnes nods regally. You may. If truth be told, I understand your dilemma. I, too, am always nearly at the point of going, but then the time doesn't seem quite right, or I find another reason, and so I stay, and I stay, and I carry on staying. You seem to be on the horns of the same dilemma. The truth is says David, ignoring Agnes's mistake. He never said he was going. You can't stay here forever, not without power and water. He tries to make it sound more like a question than a statement. Forever. Agnes repeats the word, as if savouring the taste of it. She lowers herself into the rocker. David expects the chair to gently tip back and forth, but it hardly seems to register Agnes's weight, or else it somehow lost its rock and roll. Granted, Agnes says at last, forever is a long time, especially when one says the word slowly. You mentioned yesterday that they're coming, says David. It wasn't the bees. So who are they? Ha! Huh. Agnes ushers David with another of her sudden exclamations. She almost leaps from the rocker, powering back into life, batteries recharged. The rocking chair itself still barely moves. They are the lanyard people. The what? That's what I call them. Mostly men, but sometimes women, Agnes explains, without really explaining. Dressed in suits and often wearing hard hats, as if they're frightened, my roof will collapse and pulverise them. I still don't get who they are, though. Why do you call them lanyard people? You really are an ignoramus, says Agnes happily. Lanyards are the official symbols of their office. Cords worn around their necks, from which dangle small plastic cards inscribed with their owner's name and rank. These things prove to themselves and to others who they are and what they represent. Oh, yes, I do know what they are. And he does. David can easily visualise the cords and the cards. He just didn't know the string bits were called lanyards. His auntie doctor was still wearing one the day she came to visit, straight from her conference. During hospital visits, he's often tried to read what's written on the idea labels worn by the staff, but usually the people are moving too fast for their names and positions to be easily deciphered. Are the lanyard people doctors? he asks. Did they come to check up on you? 
Agnes pouts. After the earthquakes, the lanyard people came to make judgments, not about me, but about my home. They talked of demolition or relocation, heritage and history, budget blowouts and cost reductions. Were they builders then? Developers? Did they say you had to leave? Agnes gives him an acid glance. It makes him feel as if his bones might dissolve. Like you, they were ignorant. They didn't know what to do with my house. It's the last one, and its continued presence is starting to interrupt the greening of the land. But it's also the oldest house standing, a tangible symbol of the old days. And so they debate whether it is better to retain it than to destroy it, and, if so, whether or not they can afford it. As David ponders what Agnes has told him, he hears the house whisper and plead, Help me. Save me. Can Agnes hear it too? If she can, she gives no sign. Shouldn't what happens to your house be up to you? He asks Agnes. I mean, it's yours. Why can't it be left here, just where it is, if that's what you want? It could be turned into a museum of the way things were before the earthquakes. People would come to see it, to see what things were like before... The earthquakes, says Agnes. Yes, so you've said, and what do you think would happen to me? Maybe you could stay too, David says. To serve tea in scones? His suggestion is a bad one. Agnes looks way too old, is way too old, to stay in this house for much longer, even if the house were to be rescued and renovated as some kind of museum to the pre-earthquake days. To tell the truth, David can hardly believe she's managed to hang on here for so long already, so disconnected, literally, from the world, by the skin of her teeth, as she says. Be on your guard against them, Agnes warns him. The lanyard people will chase you away if they find you here. They have rules, and they don't like anyone breaking them. David has to give it up for now. Builders or doctors or someone else altogether. He doesn't think he's going to get the truth out of Agnes. She probably knows exactly who and what the lanyard people are. But he wouldn't put it past her to want to leave him guessing. They do sound a bit scary. Perhaps he will need to be on his guard against them. For now, he focuses on practicalities instead. He's had the chance to glance around the kitchen while they've been talking. There's no fridge, no microwave, only a rusty kettle and a whole array of cupboards he's sorely tempted to look inside. No oven either, at least nothing he recognises as an oven. There's a monstrosity against the far wall that looks like it might have been used for cooking and baking a hundred years ago. Two heavy black doors beneath a thick and grimy bench top. He can't help himself. He has to know what's in the cupboards. He opens the nearest one. Agnes watches, but doesn't try to stop him. The cupboard is bare. So is the one beside it. And the one beside that. 
How do you cook? He asks Agnes. He waves at the dust, the rust, the years of disuse, at the emptiness surrounding them. Where's your food? And even if you do have an outside tap, that's not enough. You have to be able to keep yourself clean. He realises he's starting to sound like his parents, and he's not sure if that's a good or a bad thing. Agnes obviously thinks it's bad. She turns all shifty again. David can see it in the way her eyes lose focus, the way her head starts to tilt away from him, the way she hesitates before she says, I manage well enough. I have a store of reserves. Or should that be a a reserve of stores? She laughs at her own play on words. Agnes and Amber really would hit it off, David thinks. It's such a pity, for all sorts of reasons, that his sister didn't want to tag along. Chapter 16 Maybe it's time to change tack. If he's going to be any kind of a fixer-upper, David needs time to think about his next move. And Agnes probably needs some downtime from all his questioning. If he keeps asking her things, telling her what's best for her, she might tell him to push off, and this time make sure that he really does. You mentioned the river, he says, trying a diversion. Diversions are something he has occasionally fallen for. Not so often any more. I'd like to see it. Where is it exactly? His tactic works. Agnes throws her arms up in horror. You've lived here how long and not seen the river? Nearly two years, he admits. But I haven't got out and about much during that time. He should have said, I haven't been able to. Agnes looks at him, looks inside him, looks through him, it feels like, trying to work him out. What sort of boy do you call yourself? She asks him at last. David has taken her back. For the first time he feels himself getting angry with her, the way she needles him. That's not fair, he says. You don't know a thing about me. I thought not knowing much was your area of expertise, Agnes says, again smiling hugely at her own joke. But it's hardly surprising that I don't. You don't tell me anything. For your information, she says, I do know a great deal about boys. I had one myself, and he had many friends. I also have a grandson. So, where are they now? says David, getting his own back on Agnes. Not here. And for your information, I've got lots of friends too. Agnes deflates. You're right, one is dead, the other gone. David immediately regrets his outburst. There have been too many of them over the past 15 months. This isn't the way to speak to an old lady. It's not the way to talk to anyone. Everyone goes, Agnes says, and everything, in its time. As if to compensate for his rudeness, David ends up telling Agnes more about himself, more than he has told anyone for a long time. Cricket took up all my time when we first arrived, he says. It was the best thing about coming to Christchurch. I played in Auckland, but the team I joined here was the best. My game improved massively, and then... And then it went. I was... I got ill. I couldn't go out anymore. I spent ages in hospital. And COVID made everything a hundred times worse, especially for someone like me. Being sick, I mean. 
That's why I haven't seen the river yet. Not properly, that is. Only from the car. It seems weird, but... He tenses, expecting that Agnes will want to know all about his illness. Everyone asks, even if it's only out of politeness. Hmm, cricket, you say? Well, that's never been my game. Five long days of watching the grass grow. My boy enjoyed playing it, though. And David is diverted, despite himself. It's a much more interesting game these days, he says, especially the T20 matches. Agnes raises her eyebrows. What are they when they're at home? T20 stands for 2020. Each side plays one innings of 20 overs. It's a much shorter and faster game. David swings an imaginary bat to demonstrate. I bet you'd like it if you watched a match or two. Hmm, I'll take your word for it, says Agnes, dismissing the topic with another wave of the hand. If you have an interest in seeing the river, leave by the back door. Follow what's left of the brick path. When you get to the end of the path, you'll have to push your way through the trees. The gap that used to be there has closed up over the years. Once you're through, make for the cabbage trees. You'll see them immediately in front of you. Look beyond them for the tallest willow tree and go that way. Those were always my surest signposts to the river, as the crow flies, of course. And because these days there aren't any houses left to impede you, you can be as a crow. Agnes's instructions on how to reach the river began to baffle David. He hopes he'll be able to remember them. Why don't you come with me? No, I'm tired, says Agnes. You may or may not have noticed that I'm not as young as I used to be and elbowing my way through a thicket of trees holds no delights for me, not as it might once have done. Go and find the river for yourself, and, if you have the time, as well as the inclination to do so, come back and tell me what you see there. Do what Sir Bedivere did for King Arthur. David nods. Unless he doesn't have to ask Agnes what on earth she's talking about. This time he knows. Amber read him the King Arthur stories when she was nine and he was seven. They were the last stories she read aloud to him. She was always telling him to sit still or lie still, but he just couldn't help fidgeting. Have you got ants in your pants? she'd say, which would start the giggles and full stop the story. After Amber gave up reading aloud, he missed the sound of her voice, lulling him to sleep. She was as good a reader aloud as Dad was a fixer-upper. Anyway, Bedivere was the knight of the round table who had to throw King Arthur's sword, Escalibur, into the lake and come back to tell the king what he saw, once he'd done so. At first, Bedivere didn't want to chuck such an amazing sword away, so he didn't, and he lied to the king about it. But the king knew he was lying, so Bedivere at last did what he'd been told. The river's not a lake, but even if it was, David doubts you'll see anything remotely as magical as the hand that rose from the lake to take Excalibur. But Agnes has him wondering. Okay, he says, I'll go and report back if I can. No promises. And boy, Agnes adds quietly before David steps out the back door, I'm sorry to hear you've been unwell. 
Sickness is something I would never wish upon a person. Although, without illness, how can anyone be grateful for rude good health? David doesn't have an answer to her question. He doesn't think Agnes expects one. Well, we're certainly finding out things about Agnes, but she sure sounds unusual still. And I keep wondering what was wrong with David. So sad he had to give up his cricket. Next time we'll start Chapter 17. That's about halfway through the story. Goodbye, children. Happy reading. This program was made with assistance from New Zealand on air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.org.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand on air.